Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever uh, really blown it? And then as time passes, uh, you sort of reflect on what happened and you realize it was actually even worse than it first appeared. Uh, Amelia was heading off to work uh, one time uh, a couple months ago, and I told her I was going to be working at home for a little bit in the morning, so she asked me if I could go to the store and buy, I think, some sliced almonds for a dessert that she wanted to take for a meeting that night. I said, sure, of course I can do that, honey. So uh, I went about my day. Amelia came home even later than she'd planned, stressed out uh, from a really busy day and running behind schedule, and Man, was she thankful that I had remembered to go to the store and get those almonds, right? Uh, No, you know where this story is heading, don't you? She did not come home and say, boy, thank you for remembering that. It was, where are the almonds? Oh. You get that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach when suddenly you remember something that was really important and you didn't do it. Amelia was understandably disappointed, and I was ashamed, 
and there was no way to fix it. Honey, I'm so sorry. I'll run to the store. I'll buy the almonds. I'll come back. No, there's no time. I don't have time for you to go to the store and come back and still make the dessert for my meeting. And then as I thought about that, I began to feel even worse about it because it wasn't just that I had forgotten the almonds. You really start thinking about why did that happen? Why was something that was important to my wife not important to me? When I say that I want to be a loving and a helpful husband, why had I allowed my agenda and my priority to be at the top of my mind and a simple thing that would have blessed my wife just fell off the radar screen? And that is not the first time that something like that has happened, right? We've all blown it at some point. We've all known that we were guilty and we've all struggled with facing what is it that causes us to be that way. Why am I so impatient? Why do I say the things I shouldn't and spend more than I should? Why do I overeat and under-exercise? Why do I get angry at people that I say I love? Why do I desire things that God says are not good for me? Why do I have trouble trusting God's goodness? Why do I struggle to be content? It's not just that, that we do wrong things. It's not just that we're even guilty at some level. But, but there seems to be something wrong with us. And when we see that, you know, one of the temptations is, is either to try to minimize it and to convince myself it's no big deal, or I go to the other extreme and, and, and I just get stuck in guilt and shame and, and regret. What do we do? Is, is there any hope? Is there any help for us? Psalm 51 is a poem of deep failure. Personal awareness, grief, confession, repentance, and hope. Because David's story is your story. This psalm is your psalm. And, and in it, we can find God's grace for new beginnings. There's hope for us in this. But before we get into this passage today, I want to ask if, if we can try to commit to do one thing together. I want you to resist thinking, man, I am so glad that he is in the room to hear this. I'm so glad that she is here to hear this, right? Because this is the kind of message where we're going to be tempted to think, man, this is a message for them. And the elbow starts to get cocked, you know, to go and get ready to go in the ribs. And, and, and we're already anticipating the person across the room that, you know, we're going to kind of side eye a little as we get into this text. Can we ask that God would help us to use this as a mirror into our hearts and not into someone else's heart? Turn, if you would, to Psalm 51, if you haven't already, and in those black Bibles under the seats, that's page 560. I don't know what page it is on your Bible, so I'll trust you to find it or to scroll to it in your app. Psalm 51 is kind of unique in the book of the Psalms because we know exactly the circumstances that cause it to be written. And, and it pictures brokenness and the weight of freedom and life. It's written by King David after he's confronted by Nathan the prophet after David has committed adultery and deceit and murder. Now that's some serious mess. 
And if David can find freedom and rescue and hope, man, that, that gives hope for us, doesn't it? Let me ask as we get into this text, uh, when someone, you probably had this happen, someone, you know, maybe kind of graciously or not graciously confronts you with something that you've done wrong, you're confronted with your sin, how often do we tend to say, thank you so much for pointing out where I screwed up? Would you be faithful to, to continue to do that in my life? No, I mean, you know, we kind of laugh at that, right? We're smiling about that. I mean, confession time, there, there are plenty of times when Amelia has come to me in love and pointed out where I've gone wrong, and my defense at times, my response is to want to defend myself, to explain, to excuse, to justify, you know, even... Even when I'm wrong, like the, the thing with going to the store, you know, she's understandably upset, and then I get upset about her being upset. Why are you upset? You know, I know that down the road at some point, the bill's going to come due, and I'm going to have to acknowledge what I did and say, I was wrong. But for some reason in that moment, I, you know, I want to hang on to my self-righteousness as long as I can, right? Because I don't want mercy I'm looking for justice. I want to defend my cause. I want to plead my case. You know, and maybe you've seen it in trying to talk to people. I, I see it in marriage counseling. You know, a couple is, is in a broken relationship, and the, the husband is more than willing to come in and confess what his wife has contributed to the problem. And the wife is more than ready to come in and confess for her husband, but they don't want to talk about their wrong. They're not looking for, they're not giving mercy. And so they don't move and the relationship is stuck. I think the first thing David's pointing out to us is we really find freedom when we want mercy more than we want judgment. Look at what David says here. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. David is pointing out for us how, how we can be so self-righteous, so dangerously self-satisfied, so deeply self-reliant, and, and so we're tempted to run away from mercy, to, to defend our righteousness because clinging to mercy feels vulnerable, doesn't it? it? It feels like weakness. It feels dangerous and scary. But see, when I see the depth of what I really have done, what my sin really does, that's not a tragedy. That, that is mercy. That is life-giving rescue. Because when you see the ugly reality of what David has done here, David looks at it and he says, my wealth cannot save me. My power cannot rescue me. My friends, my family cannot help me get out of this. There is only one help, and it is the undeserved mercy of God. And when we see that, we cry out for mercy, not justice. And we start taking the first step from freedom. Are you willing to acknowledge? Are you willing to ask God to help you admit that your only hope is mercy and not your record, not the excuse, not the reason that you had for what you did? Because that takes us to the second thing that David's saying here that 
We find freedom really when we want hard truth more than pleasant lies. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. Can we all admit that sin does not always look ugly and destructive to us? Right? There are moments where sin looks beautiful. I mean, David is up on the balcony of his home, right? If you remember the story, and he looks out and he sees this woman, Bathsheba, and as he's starting to give in to lust in his heart, it does not look destructive. It does not look deadly. It does not look ruinous. It looks beautiful. It looks attractive. It looks desirable. And we know what that's like. Because maybe, maybe it's an email or a text or a phone call, and you find yourself slipping into gossiping about someone tearing down their reputation. And and in that moment, you don't see the danger. You feel the power of being able to shape how someone else is viewed. You feel the thrill of being the one doing the talking instead of the one being talked about. You feel the, the rush of everyone's listening to me and my opinion. It looks beautiful. If you're cheating your employer at work, you're shirking off, you're getting paid for more work than you're actually doing. It doesn't look destructive. It doesn't look ugly. You're pleased with how clever you are. You're you're proud with how you're pulling one over on your boss, right? When God opens my eyes to see the sinfulness of sin, he's setting our hearts free. And David uses three word pictures here. The first is transgression. That's rebellion, it's trespassing, it's willingly stepping over God's boundaries. It's pulling up to the store and parking in the no parking zone, even though we see the sign, because I tell myself, look, I'm only going to be in the store for a minute. But what's really going on is we're saying, look, I know what the sign says, and I don't care what the sign says. I'm going to park where I want to because I am Lord over my parking. I am the God of parking in that moment. It's not a real well-known deity, but, you know, it's a handy one to pull out (laughs) at times, right? It's rebellion. Husbands, when, when we yell at our wives, it's not because we don't know better. It's because we're saying, I'm angry, and and I want to express it in this way, and I don't care. When when you go on the internet and look at things you know you shouldn't be looking at, you're reading books, listening to things that that you know are not good for you, and, and you shouldn't be in the middle of, you're not doing it because of ignorance. We're doing it because we're saying, I will decide, and I don't care what God says about it. When you spend yourself into debt because you can't deny yourself anything, it's because we're saying, I have a right to it and I will define. We all transgress God's laws, even as his children. And the second word David uses here is iniquity. That's moral uncleanness. It's not just that I say wrong things, I do wrong things, I have wrong responses. It's that I am wrong. There is something wrong inside of me that I don't have the solution for. And it is that uncleanness that makes my heart rebel against God. That's why I need a rescuer. I mean, is there any of us here who would say, you know, I basically got it all together and I do the right thing all the time. I don't need any help. 
Because see, even though as Christians the, the power of sin has been broken for us in Christ and Jesus has paid for it all, we still fight against it. There's still the ongoing battle as Jesus is working to progressively free us from the grip and the attraction of those things. But I still have to fight it. And the third word David uses here is just, it's sin. And maybe you've heard that that's uh, this image of missing the mark. And, and that's pretty good, but, but that definition actually misses the mark. It, the image is really, if you're the archer and you're pulling back the bowstring with all of your strength, and aiming with all of your skill, it's not just that the arrow goes astray, it's that it doesn't even get close to the target. It falls short every time. Sin says, I am spiritually, I'm morally handicapped. Sin is inability. I am unable to live up to God's standard apart from his divine intervention. And you put this together and you see why sin is the ultimate human ruin, the ultimate disaster, not just because I do bad things, not just because I won't go to heaven when I die. Sin destroys relationships. It tears families apart. It corrupts government. It destroys community. It wrecks every good thing that God intends for us to experience. It makes me unwilling, unable, and unclean. And because of all of that, I am alienated from God who is the source of life and good. And if we would pray anything this morning, could we pray, God, open our eyes to see the sinfulness of sin. God, I would not see it as beautiful and desirable, but I would see it as ugly and destructive and I would hate it and run from it with your help. My sin is ever before me, David says. We find freedom when we want healing more than we want comfort. David is picturing this weight of sin pressing down on him. And at the same time, this image that it is a blessing to be haunted with the conviction of sin by a Holy Spirit who will not give up on us. Look at what David says in verse 8. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Who has broken David's bones? Can we say it together? Who has broken David's bones? God has broken his bones. Does that jump out at anyone? Listen, God loves us so much that in order to rescue my heart, he will break my bones if that's what it takes. Symbolically, maybe sometimes even literally. Spiritual pain is a warning system, just like physical pain in our bodies, right? I mean, physical pain is miserable. And I am thankful for all the doctors and nurses and medical professionals and caregivers that we have here and for the people that care for my mom in rheumatoid arthritis pain and in a skilled nursing facility. But there is one good thing about pain. Pain tells us that there is something wrong. There is some disease, there is some injury that needs to be treated for us to be whole and healthy. What is it that drives us to go to the doctor, to go to the dentist? When the pain is intense enough and it lasts long enough, we finally say, I need to get this fixed. 
And this is so crucial to get. See, when I experience the pain of God's conviction, because my sin is revealed to me, I have only two choices. One is that I joyfully confess my wrong. I turn from it. I I place myself under the rescuing mercy of Christ and I receive his forgiveness. Or... I justify myself in a way that makes the sin acceptable to my conscience. I mean, we are so good at doing that, aren't we? At, at arguing for our self-righteousness, at, at defending our case, at you know, editing the browser history of my life to make it look a little better than it is. I try to convince myself that what God says is wrong isn't really that wrong. I learn to limp with a rock in my shoe. And I put a piece of tape over the check engine light on the dashboard. Hey, problem solved, right? Glad I got rid of that. Are you thankful for the pain of conviction? Do you see it as God's freeing mercy to you? Are you thankful that there is a Savior who will invade your life and not give up until he rescues you? Because we find freedom when we want God's glory more than our agenda. Because that is God's agenda for you. Look in verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wait, no, wait a minute. Come on. How does this make any sense at all? David has committed adultery and he's killed the man who's the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. One of the ways that that we are good at minimizing our sin is by telling ourselves that it's only horizontal. David is not minimizing the reality of what he's done to Bathsheba. He knows how he has sinned against Uriah. He knows how he has sinned against their families and his family and the army and the nation. But he's saying, as bad as that is, my biggest problem, my biggest sin is against God. Because every sin forgets God's existence. Every sin is a demand that I sit on his throne. Every sin is replacing God with some idol that I want more than him in that moment. Every sin is against the relationship with God that I was created for because you and I were not created for our own glory. We weren't made to write the story of our lives. We were not born into this world to pursue our pleasures and our priorities. Out of all of creation, you and I are made uniquely in the image of God and uniquely with the ability to knowingly live for the glory of the God who has made us and to make him the central thing in our lives. Nothing ultimately belongs to me. I did not give birth to myself. I I was created by God. I was created for God. And everything that I do is supposed to have that direction towards God and be done out of love for God. We're created to find our identity and purpose in relationship with our creator. I don't know if some of you are maybe in this uh, stage of life or maybe you, uh, you remember or can at least empathize. Birthday parties with young kids can be a little overwhelming and stressful. Can you get an amen? Uh, there's the noise and uh, the mess and uh, the presents and the games and, and the sugar rush. And Amelia and I decided years ago that in order to try to maintain our sanity, our rule was going to be one guest 
for each year of the birthday child. So a four-year-old gets four guests, a six-year-old gets six guests, and we thought, oh, this is great, and then they started turning 10 and 12. We, we had to revisit that strategy. We realized that birthday parties are, are a little hard on everyone, but partially just because of the expectations that everyone has. I mean, you know the scene, right? It's the dining room or the kitchen table. Uh, At the end, there's the place for the party girl and the cake in front of her and the presents all piled around. And then around the table are the guests who have a little Ziploc bag with a couple of Tootsie Rolls and a few stickers and a plastic toy, right? And almost inevitably at one of these things, one of the kids will look down at the little party bag and look up at the table And, and start to scowl and pout. <laughs> Why is that not mine? And often one of the moms will get to the point where, you know, she sees this. And, and she walks over to the boy and she kneels down and she looks in the face and she shares this key theological insight. <laughs> Kevin, it's not your party. Because Kevin has got it wrong. Just like we get it wrong, right? Listen, you you will never understand yourself. You will never understand your purpose in life. You will never find freedom and wholeness and joy. You will never see your need for a savior until you understand this. You were born into a universe that is ultimately a celebration of someone else. And sin is demanding to have the cake and the presence and the attention and the song all pointed towards me and making it about me and my agenda and my glory and my recognition. All sin is vertical. And the amazing thing is that God, who deserves all the worship and the glory that we rob from him, steps down from his throne in order to rescue us and save us and invite us into the party anyway. That same God wants to free us from the self-centeredness and the self-focus and the self-preoccupation. And we find freedom when our eyes are open to see that our life is not about our agenda, but about the plans and the purposes of the one who created us. And then we find freedom when we want rescue more than we want self-righteousness. Have you ever noticed this in yourself? We want to find a reason for our problem that is external to us. It's outside of me. You don't know my children. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my boss. You don't know this place that I live. You don't know my financial struggles. You don't know what I've been through. One commentator calls this self-atoning externalism. I'm fine, you see. The problem is out there. And David says something incredibly profound and radically different and countercultural. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. What a humbling statement that is. What a sobering picture. See, David is saying, before I came into any challenging situation, before I had any disappointing relationship, before I had any financial struggles, before I had any physical pain, before I experienced anything, before I was ever even born, I was a sinner. And I brought my deepest problem into this world with me. 
You bring your biggest problem into your relationships. You bring your biggest problem into your work. You bring your biggest problem into all the places that you live. And, and the sinful, self-righteous part of me wants to say, you know, if only it were different. If only I had whatever it is, fill in the blank. Then, then I could do it. Then I would be good. I would be better. I would be different. And we see it all the way back in Genesis 3, right? Who did we learn it from? God goes to confront Adam and Eve in this first act of rebellion. And what are the first words out of Adam's mouth? It's this woman you gave me. I'd be fine here if it weren't for her. And we've been following that pattern ever since, haven't we? See, I am free when I finally say, Lord, it is me. It is me. I am the problem. If I lived in a perfect world with perfect people, I would still be a mess. And I need you. The world says your problems are outside you and the solution is in you. And the Bible says the exact opposite. Your problems are in you. And the solution is not out there somewhere. Your only hope is outside you. You need a rescue that you cannot provide. You don't need a situational change. You need a savior. And then ultimately we find that freedom when, when we want change more than we want to be in control. When you know that you have no hope but the mercy of God. When, when you are willing and God has graciously exposed the sin and the brokenness through conviction, when you know that all sin is against God, when you acknowledge that your biggest problem is inside, there's only one thing that you can do and it's to cry out like David does in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I need a new heart. I need a new spirit. I need a power outside of me. You know, the Bible talks about uh, the internal part of us in all kinds of ways, our mind, our will, our spirit, our emotions, our motivation, and all of it is kind of collected together in this term, heart. When you read through the Bible and you see that word, we read it as the, the core of my being, the center of what makes me, me. David is saying that there's there's nothing, God, that will save me, nothing that will free me, nothing that will help me except you giving me a new heart, except you renewing and changing me. And isn't it wonderful, all the way back in this Old Testament, the promise of what God will do is I will take away their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh, a heart that is tender and sensitive and willing, and wanting to obey. And there are places for all of us, still, as followers of Jesus, where our hearts need renewal. So we find freedom when we come to him and say, Lord, I, I give you my heart to change, to redirect, to renew, to strengthen, as only you can. And see, when we do that, here's what starts to happen down in verse 13, we, we start to live new lives beyond ourselves. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Sinners will return to you. My tongue will sing of your righteousness, O Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. See, when my heart is set free in this way, when I come to my senses through the gospel of Christ, 
I want people to know the freedom and the grace and the joy and the life that I have found in Jesus. Because if my problems are external, and there's nothing wrong with me fundamentally, what, I mean, what do I go out to tell people like, man, your life would be awesome if only you were more like me? What, what kind of good news is that, right? I, mean, I, I don't want people looking more like Jeff Schultz. Jeff Schultz can be a hot mess sometimes. I want people to look more like Jesus I, because I want to look more like Jesus. And I want to go out and tell people about how they can find that kind of life because of what God is doing in me. When I'm free, I, I point people to Christ and away from me. And, and when there's any good that people see in me, I want them to know it's because of what Jesus has done. Because on my own, I'm here with David. You don't need me. You don't need to look like me. You don't need what I have. You, you need the one who has given me what I have. And, and I want to sing the praise of a God then who knows all of my deepest shameful stuff and he loves me and he forgives me and he rescues me and he changes and helps me. I, 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 want, I want to see God's kingdom expand. Look in verse 18, do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings. See, Zion and Jerusalem, that's God's kingdom, that's God's people. That's God's mission, God's purposes in the world. Because when I'm stuck in my world, see, my agenda, my self-righteousness, I'm not free to love you. I need you to approve me, I need you to validate me, I, I need you to agree with me, or I need to be in control of you, I need to prove that I'm better than you. But when God frees me from that, what I care about is not my kingdom, now it's Jesus' kingdom, it's Jesus' agenda, it's Jesus' people that I care about. I want to see other people blessed, I, I want to see God's plans advance, not mine. I want his agenda to shape my life, I, I care about Worship. I care that God's name is glorified and made much of. All this ultimately, it, it, it can't stop here in Psalm 51, right? Because it's, it's pointing us forward. It's really a prophetic psalm because David sees that he needs a, a greater king than him. By faith, he is looking forward to a greater son of David who will come on the scene. The Lord Jesus would face all the temptations that David faced. The Bathsheba temptation, the Uriah temptation, power and pleasure and all of it. But he was without sin. He obeyed where David failed. He would be the perfect sacrifice who would wash us with hyssop and cleanse us and renew us so, so that God's righteous anger at sin would be directed away from us and onto his son and then amazingly his righteousness would be credited to our account so that I could stand boldly and confidently in the presence of a holy God even though I myself am not righteous so that we could receive forgiveness so that we could know his acceptance and his smile and, and eternal life and that means now when God uses another person he uses a situation to bring the pain of conviction now, now I don't try and run away from it. I don't have to hide from it. Now I can embrace it because there's nothing that I have done that God does not already know about. And there's nothing that I have done that Jesus has not already paid for. So now I can freely and joyfully own up to 
the brokenness and the mess and what God still needs to do in me. I can run into the presence of a holy and merciful God to find his forgiveness, his empowerment, and one day even his ultimate deliverance from this body of death. Nothing will ever be exposed that Jesus has not already paid for, that Jesus does not already know about. He loves, he forgives, he changes us. He wants you to be free from guilt and shame. God opens our eyes to see the sinfulness of sin because he desires truth in the inward parts, not to bring judgment, not to bring condemnation, but to draw us close and say, come, come to me to receive what only I can give you, to give you freedom and fullness and life. Can you lead us in, in prayer together? But uh, as we've done uh, somewhat in this series, we're going to have an opportunity to come together in prayer in unison. If, if you want to follow along in the screens, you grab one of those uh, red hymnals in front of you, you can turn to number 457. And there's a a confession in there that I'm going to lead us in, in saying together. And we're doing this because in a minute we're going to come and share the Lord's Supper together. This confession, it, it's intended to reveal what's really going on in us and, and remind us that it's safe to do that because the promise of God's love, the assurance of His grace is written in the blood of His Son on the cross. And we're reminded and renewed in that relationship as we come to this table as God's freely forgiven children. So let's enter into this prayer of confession together. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess in your presence the sinfulness of our nature, our shortcomings and offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy, O Lord, upon us who are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. And forgive our sins through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Hear the word that God says in response to that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's not just an empty promise. It happens because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And we have an opportunity to remember and to celebrate it as we come to the Lord's table together. If you belong to Jesus, if that prayer, if that hope, if that cry is true of you, this meal is for you. And if you don't know that that's true of you, simply let the bread and the cup pass and use this time to pray and ask God to help you see him and know him through these words of David in Psalm 51. As the ushers come forward uh, to serve us, please wait until we've all received the bread and the cup and then Pastor Tom will lead us in sharing communion together.